Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. We have recently taken some detours away from directly discussing the issue of Christian nonviolence. So I thought it might be a, a good thing to come back to that uh, discussion. And while I feel like I've, I've laid out a, a pretty solid uh, overarching case for the issue of nonviolence, uh, and provided plenty of resources for you to be able to dig a lot deeper into each of those points. One thing, as I was as I was reflecting back, one thing that I I feel like I could dig into a lot more is kind of going on the the attack uh, for the the counter position. And while I did that a little bit, I believe in episode four, where I talked about how um, some of the some of the merits of just war theory are extremely questionable. I feel like I could really dig a lot more into that. And that's what I want to do today. So some of what I have to say will be a little bit repetitive from episode four. Um, but instead of you know giving you some ideas in a 20-minute in a time span, we're going to turn this into at least a few episodes, um, if not one for each point for Just War. So today we're going on the offensive and um, trying to answer the question of does does the just war theory really make a lot of sense? Because a lot of a lot of critics like to take a look at at the nonviolent position and say that it's really idealistic and it just doesn't work and uh, it's not tenable. And we've we've done a lot of discussing. You know, Harawas does a good job of of unpacking that and kind of swinging swinging back at the just war theorists. We took a, a look at what uh, Yoder's book, uh, "What Would You Do?" Uh, that book kind of talked about some real life examples of of nonviolence in action. You can go to uh, a, a really good website called Waging Nonviolence, which gives you a lot of real world examples, and their podcasts called City of Refuge, um, gives one example from World War II, not Belgium, uh, not Denmark, but but another example from France of a, a community that used nonviolence to successfully save 5,000 people. Um, and then you can look at uh, a really good book that I, I just read um, called Victories Without Violence, and it gives a lot of, a lot of interesting stories of uh, especially Quakers who used violence throughout the course of history. Um, so we can see that, that uh, pacifism isn't nearly as untenable as people say it is, um, and oftentimes a lot of people just assume that just war theory is tenable, and the only tenable thing, especially in comparison to pacifism, you know, that's what C.S. Lewis said in his, in his uh, discussion. He just thought that pacifism was idealistic um, and assumed that the alternative wasn't. So we want to kind of tear that down. We want to look at just war theory and really uh, assess it and address it. So today, we are going to just take a look at the history of just war. Now, this is going to be a very brief history and um, incomplete. It's going to be something that you're going to want to research a lot further. And hopefully I don't do injustice to it by simplifying it too much. Um, but to keep things kind of short, um, I'm, I'm just going to probably gloss over quite a number of things. 
And of course, you know the position where I'm coming from, and, and I have a certain bias. So definitely you know, check out check out other sources and dig deeper. Um, but I'm going to give you my short perspective of, of the history of just war. And to make it short, we're going to deal with basically two guys. The, the two guys in Christian thought who are, are famous for putting the ideas of just war uh, into, into writing and being something that we can work through and, and think through. And that would be Augustine and Aquinas. Now, you can, you can find varying lists of what these, these guys kind of uh, came up with, but essentially the, the criteria for just war that you're going to be able to pull cumulatively out of these two individuals is going to be that a war needs a just cause, so a, a legitimate reason to go to war, um, generally the, the defense of uh, innocent life or uh, borders or whatever else. Uh, and that's you can you can discuss that and dispute that, but um, uh, what a just cause is. But there must be a just cause. There must be a just authority, and that would be probably I think they would agree uh, a national uh, government, not some you know, militia that you piece together. Um, but it has to be a just authority, however it is that you define that. You know, uh, so. You know, a, a king would be a just authority. A president would be a just authority. Would a warlord, like let's say you go to uh, um, Afghanistan, or uh, I don't know what the, what do they call them in Japan, like shoguns or something. I don't. Know, I'm I'm ignorant about what they call them. But they, you know, in in their history had sorts of of people like that, where it wasn't a unified empire all the time, but you kind of had these of these more localized authorities. So I don't know how you define it, and we can discuss, uh, you could discuss how you want to define a just authority, but there must be some just authority to be able to do this. Romans 13 talks about uh, governments, so whatever Romans 13, whatever you think that means by governments, uh, that's what we would say just authority is. And there's right intention. So are you are you going to war for the right reason, which kind of goes with just cause, um, and and uh, are you controlling yourself in war? So are you just seeking revenge? Are you trying to um, take war too far? Like when when they want peace and and uh, you refuse to relent, that is that a right intention? No. Um, so right intention before the war and throughout the war. And there's discrimination, which is, is basically like, are you discriminating between combatants and non-combatants, between innocents and the non-innocent as you go out and do your killing? Then we also have last resort. Is the war a last resort, or could you, could you figure out another way to get around this? Could you find peace in some way? Now, on top of, of those, which are the basic ones you're going to get, from Aquinas and uh, Augustine combined, we also have uh, modern agreements on uh, two other ideas. And I'm going to list these separately because 
there might be more disagreement among Christians for these, but it's, it's largely agreed upon. That is reasonable success. So if you don't have a chance at reasonable success and you throw your, your armies um, at another army just to get slaughtered, you don't accomplish anything. You don't accomplish your goal, and that seems like a waste of life. So you have to have reasonable success. And finally, just peace. Um, and we see this we see this a lot, especially after World War One, and we realize that we basically created horror by having a a very unjust or harsh peace treaty. Um, we need to have a just peace, a fair treaty, one that doesn't just completely demoralize a country, and we need to kind of help to stabilize a, a country after we we go to war with it. Um, so the winner needs to not just win, but then needs to help rebuild and, and um, come alongside of another country. And that would be just peace. All right, so those are, those are the essential ideas of just war that we will get into in subsequent episodes. But let's talk about the, the men who came up with these sorts of ideas, or recognize these ideas and, and put them on paper. First, you got Augustine uh, in the the 300s, 400s, around that time. Uh, And Augustine came at a really interesting time in in Christian history. He came at a time uh, a little bit after Constantine when Christianity was was gaining power, gaining political power. And it had just started to become popular and influential. And uh, it was a unique time to, to really be involved in and a great time for Augustine to come on the scene because he was able to then have a lot of influence, not just in his day, but uh, throughout history because his work survived and um, he was influential at a time when Christianity was trying to get its bearings. Now one of the things you're going to see from a lot of pacifists is that they find Augustine highly suspect uh, in terms of his, his just war theory because... You know, it's really questionable whether Augustine was was trying to rationalize a position from a uh, rationalize his position from a place of power or not, because it seems like there's a really abrupt change in policy or in theology uh, as Constantine took over and as Christianity became the status quo, because you don't find any any endorsement of violence prior to Constantine. I mean, you, you find uh, just univocal um, ideas about, you know, no abortion, no, no capital punishment, uh, no, no war, no self-defense, just, just nothing. And then you get Constantine, and, uh, and then you get Augustine coming on as kind of the mouthpiece for Christianity, trying to uh, put that theology down in a in a rational way, and and trying to kind of solidify ideas, and you know it really begs the question: was was Augustine just trying to help Christians maintain power, whether he realized it or not? You know, he he might not have been malicious, but you know what? A lot of us do this all the time, where you kind of assume the position that you're in. And you defend that position rather than uh, acquire a position because you've rationally thought it through. So we don't know Augustine's uh, motives, and we don't know what his, um, you know, subconscious 
was doing. But all of the evidence seems to, to indicate that um, the early Christians were opposed to the types of things Augustine was, was saying, and um, Augustine was kind of a product of his environment. And you can you can kind of see this in in some way because Augustine doesn't really throw off um, as much as a lot of people like to think he does. You know, when you think of Augustine, you think this guy who invented the just war idea, which isn't true. I mean, there there were ideas that were going around, and he uh, you know in Greek thought and and Roman thought that he recognized and and used and and all of that, but. You can see that that Augustine really had a lot of the the orthodox position from the very early church, because even though Augustine justified war, which you know he wanted to do because Christianity was now coming to power and uh, you kind of needed Christians to be soldiers and and you needed to maintain power and fight off enemy forces, um, the the uh, invaders, but you know, even though Augustine was was justifying war, he doesn't justify other sorts of violence. Okay, capital punishment because that's that's the arm of the state, but Augustine does not justify self-defense. He can't imagine how anybody can kill and somebody who's attacking them or their family. And this goes back to something Yoder says in in his book What Would You Do where he talks about how it's so interesting that we Americans aren't bothered when we hear of civilians getting killed in in our wars, right? Uh, Vietnamese civilians, Iraqi civilians, Afghani civilians. You know, we're like, well, that's kind of a shame. It's it's collateral, but you know, what what can be done about it? But when it's our family, we say that they have a right to life, and we will defend them and and kill any aggressor uh, that comes after them. And Yoder's point is just that our our uh, anger is is really about our possessions and our things and not so much about what is right and what is just. Because if it was about what's right and what's just, we'd have just as much indignation about civilians from other countries getting killed. But we don't. Um, we, we just care about kind of what's ours and what's in our sphere of influence who who our neighbor is, I guess you could say, in more biblical terms. And Augustine recognized that issue. He said, hey, if somebody's coming after your family, or if somebody's coming after you, you're, you're not going to be uh, neutral. You are going to have these passions that make you hateful and angry and unloving as you strike out at the aggressor. You're going you're gonna to strike out not in love, but uh, in in hate and anger and um, protection of your possessions, jealousy, envy, whatever you want to call it. And that is not a good thing because Jesus tells us to love at all times. Love God and love others. Augustine recognized that love is the guiding principle and you just can't throw that off. You can't get rid of it and be a Christian. It doesn't work. So you always had to maintain love. And, and that's exactly what the early church said. But what Augustine did... Augustine did to uh, to try to enable his his uh, country to have power, his group to have power, is that he just said, "Well, if my government commands it, and I'm a warrior, then I can kill uh, 
in a disimpassioned manner. Um, I can kill people without hate. I can kill people in love because my government tells me to do it. I'm obeying the command. It's kind of a an amoral thing. I'm just I'm just doing it. It's just a kind of a, a duty. So you know, Americans like to like to justify war today, and we like to justify self defense and our gun culture and all of that. And that's just something that Augustine would have been abhorred by. I think this idea that. And well, somebody comes into my home, I'm going to blast them. No, that they should know better. So while Augustine gets you part of the way in this idea of just war, when you kind of dig into his true thoughts, he actually sets at least American uh, war lovers back quite a bit because um, he he actually goes more more against our culture than he goes for us. Now, Aquinas is the second famous person in terms of of, uh, Christian history of just war. And Aquinas, I don't know if I would say he built on Augustine's ideas or if he kind of took what what he liked, but um, Aquinas kind of took out three main points of of what we talked about uh, up above just cause, just authority, and I believe right intention. Um, but that doesn't really matter so much. He He's kind of in line with Augustine. But here's what Aquinas essentially uh, kind of gives us that, that advances us to more where we are today. Aquinas added this, this idea of um, double effect. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Essentially what this this idea of double effect allowed was it it kind of extended the violence that we were able to do. And so Aquinas was okay with self-defense. He thought it was legitimate because um, if, if the state said that a citizen could defend themselves, then individuals were just being an arm of the state, which allowed the killing of other people. But... Uh, while Aquinas was okay with his self-defense, he was only okay so long as one's intent was not to kill. You know, this is this is where we get into the the double effect, where uh, the double effect says that the intent of good in an action can justify an evil outcome. We talked about this a bit in our uh, ectopic pregnancy episode on the consequentialism series. Um, but just to kind of rehash that a bit. So one example of, of what I think would be a legitimate double effect is if you have a pregnant mother who has cancer and she has to decide, do I take chemotherapy and put my child's life at risk? Knowing that, I don't know, let's say it has a 99% chance of dying. So the mom takes chemotherapy. Is she a murderer? I would say no because of double effect. She was taking the chemotherapy, and the chemotherapy's job was to kill the cancer, but as a side effect, the baby dies. We can see this in the uh, in the bridge film as well. If you uh, look on YouTube, this uh, this bridge operator drawbridge has uh, his kid at work with him one day, and the kid is playing around and kind of falls into the the gears, but at that moment a train is coming and the dad has to decide, do I put the bridge down knowing that my son almost certainly will die and get crushed in the gears and save the 20 people on the trolley? Or do I not lower the bridge and let the people on the trolley die? 
So he lowers the bridge. His son dies. Is the father guilty of murder because his pulling of the mechanism killed his son? And I would say, no, that's a legitimate example of a double effect because uh, the father pulled the lever in order to save the people on the trolley, right? The bridge coming down. He pulled the lever to make the bridge come down, not to kill his son. Um, his son's death was a side effect. Now, we can we can kind of get a clearer picture of what a double effect is by taking a look at what I think are bad examples of a double effect. Um, one example would be if one person's at the bottom of a organ donor list, say a heart donor list, and an, another person's at the bottom of a liver donor list, and the one per they both know that they're going to die. They're not going to get their organ in time, and so the one kills the other to in order to. Uh, to get the the organ that he needs. Uh, well, if they were both going to die anyway, can't I just kill the one so that I can then acquire their organ? I mean, they're going to die anyway. Well, no, because their death, right? Their their harm was the means. It was the thing that you needed to do in order to accomplish your task. Um, you did violence to somebody to accomplish your end. Um, that's what you, you had to do. You couldn't have taken their organ without their death. In the in the chemotherapy and baby example, right? you could have taken the chemo to kill the cancer and the baby lived. You wanted both of those, both of those things and both of those things were intended. Um, in the bridge, same thing. But when you, uh, when you try to take somebody's heart or liver, their death is is a part of the process in order to get what you want. We see a similar example in Second Kings, where a city is besieged, and two neighbors, uh, one neighbor goes to the king and says, "Hey, look, this great injustice has been done. We're our, our my family's starving, my neighbor's family's starving, and yesterday we agreed to eat my kid, kill my kid and eat him, and then today we were going to kill my neighbor's kid and eat him." But now she hit her kid. She's like, "That's unjust. Now we're now we're gonna starve. Like that's not fair because I've we've already killed and eaten my kid." And you ask the question, "Okay, they're they're all starving by eating the one kid. They saved two families' lives at least for a, for a time. Um, was that is that really just to murder a child and eat him in order to save a number of people's lives?" And I, most Christians would say, no, that's not. You, you can't murder somebody in order to sustain your life. Like that's, um, you murder an innocent person to sustain your life. That just isn't reasonable. That's not moral. And so that would not be a double effect. Even though your intention was to get food to eat, the death of another person is not really a byproduct. It's the means to get the thing that you want. So what I think Aquinas largely does, so I think Augustine, uh, I'm sorry, Aquinas goes wrong here because he essentially is arguing that, that shooting an intruder can be a, a good thing so long as your intent is to prevent harm of your family and not to kill the intruder. So he's basically saying it's like the chemo and baby or like the, the son and the bridge story. right? If somebody's coming and... I know they're coming to harm my family. 
and I shoot them, and I'm not trying to shoot them in the head or something that I know is going to kill them, um, and I shoot them in order to stop them from harming my family, as long as in my heart I really don't want their death, um, what I'm really trying to do is to protect my family, then that's okay. And if they die, that's a side effect. Uh, I mean, that, there are lots of questions you get out because because essentially if you shoot them and they keep coming and then you shoot them again and they keep coming, you, know, you shoot them in the head, okay, you didn't really want their death, but um, you, you, at some point you definitely know that it's going to happen. If you're aiming for their heart, you're aiming for their head, or you shoot them multiple times, uh, you know that, that their death is a means to to protect your family. So the question is, which category does that fall into? Is that a legitimate double effect, or is that not a legitimate double effect? Now Aquinas, I'm sorry, Augustine, acknowledged that, that such self-defense was just in a legal sense, but he denied that it was just in a moral sense before God. So this is where Aquinas really furthers the discussion of just war and self-defense and, and doing a violence for Christians. Now I'll link a, a good article that digs into some of that stuff below. Now, we see a lot of internal conflict in Augustine and Aquinas's work, much of which we'll discuss in subsequent episodes under each aspect of just war. You know, it might end up that we have a an episode for each piece of just war theory, each of the uh, five to eight pieces I decide to uh, to highlight. But I just want to point out a, a few that I think are, are extremely glaring that I, I want you to keep your ears peeled for. So first, you know, Augustine's recognition of love I think is huge, and I think he's spot on, right? Love God, love others all the time. Who do I love? My neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Even my enemy, right? Uh, love is the, the guiding principle, and that's, that's undeniable, I believe, for Christians. But Augustine's application seems a little bit lacking. He does, he does way better than most people who, who come after him, and way more than, than most moderns really uh, acknowledge, because we like to take his justification for war and then forget all the stuff he said about love and self-defense. But you know, Augustine's application still seems lacking, even though he's, he's really close. You know, how do you kill your enemy in love, in war, any more than than you can when they're attacking your family. So I might be, I might have passions in the moment because I'm scared if somebody breaks into my home. But I guarantee you that before you go out to battle, or when you have bullets whizzing by your head, um, or when you have the nationalism that you have to have to psych people up to go out and and conquer their enemies for God and country, I guarantee you, you've got passions. Like, is it? Is it really possible to do that in a in a uh, disimpassioned way? I don't I don't think it is. Um, I think that's just as inherent in a war that's commanded by my government than in in the heat of the moment if somebody breaks into my house. Um, your country is your homeland, and your home is your home. I mean, what's what's the difference? So it seems kind of you know August, Augustine's got really great logic. On, on this idea of love, but then he seems to just uh, back out and, and not apply it appropriately or consistently when it comes to war. And that's why part of why I think so many pacifists just have problems with uh, the post-Constantinian era where it just seems like 
people start to, uh, their thinking starts to get murky when it comes to things that influence the power of the state, because you've got this marriage of church and state. Definitely check out uh, the book Anatomy of a Hybrid. I think it, it kind of gets into some of the stuff that, that's enlightening. So another glaring issue I think we can see with Aquinas, because Aquinas seems to recognize the problem with using another's death as a means to save one's life. But somehow he thinks that you know, if there's an aggressor and I don't want to kill them, but I hack them with a sword as a means, that that's really any more loving than just trying to, to slash their head off in the first place. It's almost as if he, like, he misapplies his own double effect, or he, he thinks that um, you know, slashing somebody with a sword is, is more loving than trying to kill them right, right off the bat. And I just, I don't know, it's, it's hard for me to think how I slash somebody with a sword, hack somebody with a sword in love, whether I'm intending to kill them or seriously maim them or whatever. Uh, it seems like their harm is a means to to uh, the end I'm seeking. It's not just some uh, byproduct. I think the third issue is that, um, and you see this in, in a, a good book on moral injury and, and soldiers and warfare, called Killing from the Inside Out. And and the book isn't, I'm pretty sure it's not ultimately a, a pacifistic book. It's sympathetic towards pacifism, but it more just kind of looks at um, war realistically and and asks people on both sides um, to consider the the cost to soldiers and, and why that might be the case. So it's a, it's a really good book. Um, but it in it, I remember there's a really interesting piece that I never really realized before, and it it talks about how I think up through the 11th or 12th century, Christianity recognized the impropriety of war, and it, they did this for a long, long time. And they would require penance from soldiers, even in wars that were just, or even even um, for killing people in a just war, they would require penance. We see a similar sort of concept from Aquinas, who says that. Killing is fine out of one side of his mouth, but then he calls it improper for holy workers. He says that, well, priests and clerics shouldn't, shouldn't be doing this work. Uh, and you ask, uh, I'll give you a quote from him here in a second, but you have to ask, well, if, if especially Protestants today who take the priesthood of God more, more seriously, or maybe not more seriously, but we apply it more broadly, and we think that we're the temple of God and we're all a royal priesthood, then how much more would Aquinas' observation apply to us. So here's a quote from Aquinas. Now warlike pursuits are altogether incompatible with the duties of a bishop and a cleric for two reasons. The first reason is a general one, because to wit, warlike pursuits are full of unrest, so that they hinder the mind very much from the contemplation of divine things, the praise of God, and prayers for the people, which belong to the duties of a cleric. Wherefore, just as commercial enterprises are forbidden to clerics because they unsettle the mind too much, so too are warlike pursuits. According to 2 Timothy 2.4, no man, being a soldier to God, entangleth himself with secular business. The second reason is a special one, because to wit, all the clerical orders are directed to the ministry of the altar, on which the passion of Christ is represented sacramentally, according to 1 Corinthians 11.26. As often as you shall eat this bread and drink the chalice, you shall show the death of the Lord until he come. Wherefore it is unbecoming for them to slay or shed blood, 
and it is more fitting that they should be ready to shed their own blood for Christ, so as to imitate indeed what they portray in their ministry. For this reason, it has been decreed that those who shed blood, even without sin, become irregular. Now, no man who has a certain duty to perform can lawfully do that which renders him unfit for that duty. Wherefore, it is altogether unlawful for clerics to fight, because war is directed to the shedding of blood. So, I mean, essentially what Aquinas is saying is that if if a pastor's job, bishop, priest, cleric, uh, whatever, if their job is to administer the sacrament, which represents the uh, sacrifice of Christ, how can they go and sacrifice other people? It's better for them to lay down their lives than to kill other people because they represent God to people. Now, this is where the, the book Anatomy of a Hybrid, I think, illuminates a lot of things because Aquinas is living in a sacral society, a society that uh, is built on all of these traditions and, and um, you know, everybody gets baptized and everybody does this, everybody does that. You know, you're all, you're kind of, you're automatically opted in at birth and you have to go through all of these motions and you have this priest who you have to go to and he's your intercessor, he's your mediator before God. And so you, you kind of have that specified sacred secular role. But we don't really think like that as Protestants today. We would say that um, we shouldn't have that distinction because all of us are to represent Christ before the world. And Aquinas' observation here is that um, if we're going to truly represent Christ to the world, then the only way we can really do that is by laying down our own lives. It's just that Aquinas thought that was a priest's job back in the day, and today Protestants recognize that we're a royal priesthood, and that's all of our jobs. And that's again where Yoder's book comes in, The Politics of Jesus, which it's, it says that, look, Christ's life is not just descriptive of the Messiah, but it's prescriptive for us in many ways. And that's where the rub is. You know, if Christ's life is prescriptive for us and we're to be disciples and followers and we're supposed to act um, as Christ acted, which Philippians 2, among other passages, but especially Philippians 2, seems to say, then we act like Christ because we're all um, representatives of him. And that's what the very early church did and recognized. Uh, Augustine even, uh, Augustine even recognized that to a certain extent, just not in war justified by um, by government. But even Augustine said, yeah, that's that's kind of what you do because we can't kill out of love unless directed by a higher authority. So taking all that into account, it seems that Aquinas and Augustine are really strange bedfellows for modern warriors who want to justify warfare as a long-standing tradition in Christianity. It ignores the strongest uncompromised side of the very early church and their unwillingness to kill their enemies, to kill for the state, to kill in abortion, to kill in capital punishment, um, it, it, to love everybody, even their enemies. Um, Aquinas and Augustine also, they failed to justify the extent of killing that we attempt to justify today, particularly in the United States. Now, if you go back to episode one, season one, where I talk about how I grew up, I mean, conservative Christians are just somebody comes into my house, I'm going to blast them, right? We are violent, and we are are okay with violence towards our enemies. Um, people in my group would say, you know, why don't we just nuke the Middle East? 
No, it just dropped bombs. Well, you know, I'm glad we dropped the A-bomb. Look how many American soldiers it saved. We are just, just terrible in terms of the violence we're willing to exact and, and support. But Augustine and Aquinas, uh, at least in their logic, maybe not in their inconsistent applications, but at least in their logic, don't justify the extent of our violence today. Augustine and Aquinas also fail to justify our flippant attitude towards killing enemies. The, um, you know, well, just nuke them, right? You know, when I when I read Augustine and Aquinas, it seems like they are doing a lot of work to justify violence in extreme circumstances by just authorities and with extreme uh, reserve in terms of, uh, you know, Aquinas, even though he, he extends violence beyond what Augustine did, Aquinas knows that this is a serious issue, and he goes to great lengths to uh, say, well, you can do it in this case, but, you know, you got to make sure of this and that and that and that. And um, they recognize the, the seriousness of this issue, which is something that we just don't recognize today. So hopefully you understand a little bit better the very brief, shallow history that I just gave you of just war. And we're going to start talking um, in the next episode about my questions and issues with each point of of the just war and why I, I think that just war just falls apart logically. It's, it's, uh, it's idealistic. It's incoherent. It's um, hypocritical. It's illogical. And it just doesn't work. It, it doesn't hold up. So I'm excited to get to that. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. So that's all for now. Peace. Because I'm a pacifist. And I say it. I mean it. <laughs>